Church family, I invite you to open up in your copy of God's Word to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. It's our text for today. The title of our message is Knowing God Well. Knowing God Well. Genesis chapter 18. I'm going to read this text of God's Word. You follow along in your copy. This is the Word of God. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. 
And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Heavenly Father, would you help us understand your word, understand you, understand your will for us. Help us to learn to love you more. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul ended his explanation to the Romans of the gospel, God's plan of salvation, this way. Paul said, Oh, the depths and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? In other words, Paul is saying that any attempt at plumbing the depths of who God is and how he works and why he does what he does will leave us awestruck and speechless and humbled at even trying to attempt to do such a thing. Trying to attempt to understand God. And yet, the same Paul who wrote that about God, about how crazy it is that we would even think that we could know God, that same Paul wrote, uh, excuse me, spoke to the Athenians there in Athens, and he spoke to them, and he talked about this unknown God that they had. They were worshiping this, they called it the unknown God. And Paul told them, I want to tell you that unknown God is a God who you can know. He's a God who wants you to seek him and find him and worship him. And church, God has made a way for us to seek him and find him and know him. One of the great truths about God is that his transcendence, that is his otherness, the thing that makes us go, God, you are so not like me and I am so not like you. Even though he is like that, his transcendence, does not keep us from knowing him. Yes, God is great. Yes, God is high above us. And we need to spend time thinking on that truth and reflecting on that. But God has revealed himself to us. And we cannot know everything about God. Some things are a mystery. Our minds are limited by the mere fact that we are not God. It's by our nature that we are human. We are not God. Our minds are limited. And yet God has created us to know him to live in relationship with him, and to increase in our knowledge of him. Church, we can know God well. And we've been learning in Genesis about what it means to have a covenant relationship with God and what life in that covenant looks like. And we learn in chapter 18 this truth. Covenant relationship with God brings the blessing of a growing knowledge of God. Covenant relationship with God brings the blessing of a growing knowledge of God. If you'll recall, just to set context for just a moment, back in chapter 12, God made some great promises to Abram when he called him out. And, uh, and he said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you land, offspring. I'm going to bless the whole world through you, which that promise lets us know that through Abraham is going to come God's promised deliverer for the world. Then we skip to chapter 15. We saw that God entered into a covenant relationship with Abram, not because Abram was good, but because Abram had faith in God's promises. It was a covenant that was based on God's grace. And then we skip a couple chapters to chapter 17. We learn that life in God's covenant means that we will respond to God's grace with obedience to his commands. And today in chapter 18, we learn something else about what it means to live life in covenant relationship with God. And that, that thing that we learn in chapter 18 is that covenant relationship with God brings the blessing of a growing knowledge of God. 
When we live in covenant relationship with God, when we belong to God by His grace, um, through our faith in His promises, which center upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we get to enjoy the blessing of knowing the God who made us and growing in that knowledge of Him. And church, it is a blessing. It is a blessing that we can know God and that we can continually increase in our knowledge of God. It's a blessing because growing knowledge of God is essential for a growing faith in God. If we want our faith in God to be growing, we must be growing in our knowledge of the God in whom we believe. Church, I believe that one of the reasons so many Christians' faith proves shaky during the trials and the storms and the temptations of life is that we are not seeking to grow in our knowledge of the God in whom we say we believe. But show me a Christian who loves growing in his or her knowledge of God. And I'll show you a Christian whose faith remains steadfast in the midst of the, of the storms and the trials and the temptations of this life. Now, I don't mean that person is going to have perfect faith. I don't mean that person has all the answers in the midst of those situations of life. But I do mean that person who is growing in his or her knowledge of God will display a growing steadfast faith in God. Because the more you know about God, the more you will want to trust in him. Now, growth in our knowledge of God is only possible if God reveals himself to us. We can't just set out on this journey and say, well, I'm just going to know, I'm just going to know whatever I want to know about God. We are dependent upon God revealing himself to us. We can only know what God reveals to us. But praise God, he has revealed himself to us. It's one of the great truths about our God that he is a God who can be known and has made himself known to us. And this is one of the blessings of living in covenant relationship with God. God teaches us more and more about himself so that we'll trust him more and more. And that's one of the blessings that we see displayed in the life of Sarah and Abraham, people who are living in covenant relationship with him. We see that here in chapter 18. I want to share with you uh, five truths this morning God reveals to Abraham about himself. And therefore, as he revealed them to Abram, and, uh, and then I'm going to, by the way, I'm going to probably say Abram a lot because I've said Abram for several weeks now. Now I've got to shift to Abraham. As we learned last week, God changed his name. Now I've got to change it in my mind, okay? Um, so if I say Abram, I mean Abraham. Uh, but I want us to see these truths that God reveals to Abraham uh, with the hope that our faith is going to be strengthened as we grow to know God better. Let's rejoice that we can know this God. The first truth that I want you to see today is that God graciously becomes like us so that we can know him better. God graciously becomes like us so that we can know him better. In verses 1 through 8, we see Abraham show genuine hospitality to three men. They show up at his tent. He invites them to stay. He prepares water for them to wash their feet. He and his wife, Sarah, prepare this lavish meal, right? They, 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 they fix a lot of food. They, they fix a not just any cow, but the tender and good one, all right? So a lavish meal. And then Abraham stands by them while they eat, was at what, which was the custom of the day, so that he was ready to get anything that his guests, these visitors, needed. Now, this would perhaps be nothing more than an example of kind and generous hospitality, and it definitely is that. But it might only be that except for the opening phrase of chapter 18. What, is, what does verse 1 say? How does it open? And the Lord appeared to him. We don't know exactly how much Abraham knew of the identity of these three men when they first arrived. But as the story unfolds in chapter 18 and 19, we learn that two of these men are messengers or angels of God. And the third is God himself, the Lord. 
God has come down to meet with Abraham and to reveal more of his nature and his character to Abraham and Sarah. We know from Scripture that God is spirit. He does not have physical form. And yet this encounter with Abraham reveals that God is willing to take on human form in order for his people to gain a deeper understanding of who he is. And when you consider that we are God's creation and that though we are made in his image, we are so far beneath him. And then add to the fact uh, to that, the fact that we have sinned against God, that creation is corrupt and we are corrupt because of our sin. Then we must view this act of God as a gracious act of condescension on his part. God does not have to leave heaven and appear in this wicked world. But he does because he wants Abraham and Sarah and us to know him better. It is an act of grace. And what a blessing it is. What a, what a blessing. What, a, what, what a, a gracious act. We don't deserve that. We don't want to read quickly past that. And be like, oh yeah, God showed up with, to appear to Abraham and Sarah. No, God. Why would God want to enter down into this world that has rebelled against him? Except for the fact that he desires relationship with us and he shows us great grace. What an act of grace, what a blessing, and what a foreshadowing of the promised offspring who would come from the line of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 18 and in other places in the Old Testament, we see God appear as a man. But about 2,000 years after this event took place, God would actually become a man. Paul wrote to the Galatians in the New Testament, For when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. And in the opening of John's gospel account, he begins by describing Jesus as the eternal word who was both with God in the beginning and who was God and who was the creator of all that is. And then John says this about Jesus, and this word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And then he goes on to say that no one has ever seen God. And then he says, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He's talking there about the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then if we skip ahead several chapters in the Gospel of John, John 14, we find Jesus speaking with his disciples. And John writes this of that conversation. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Church, what we have in Genesis 18 is a foreshadowing of what God was going to do a couple of thousand years later when he was actually going to become a man. God graciously becomes like us so that we can know him better. God did that most amazingly through the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't just appear as a man. Jesus became a man. He emptied himself from heaven to earth. He humbled himself from life to death. Even, Paul writes, death on a cross. Listen to Paul's words to the Philippians. He says, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is a gracious act of condescension by our great God so that we, 
people who had rebelled against him could know him and not just know things about him, but so that we could know him in a saving, covenantal, forgiving, eternal relationship with the God who made us. God lowers himself to become like us so that we can know him. Let's make sure we praise God for that. Truth number two, God has the power to do what seems impossible. God has the power to do what seems impossible. We want to we grow today in our knowledge of God, just as Abraham and Sarah, through this encounter, were growing in the knowledge, their knowledge of God. And one of the things God revealed to them, and he reveals to us, is that he has the power to do what seems impossible. Verse 9 through 15, we see God interact with Abraham and Sarah regarding the child that he had promised. Remember back in chapter 17, God told Abraham that he would give him a son by his wife, Sarah. Abraham found that pretty hard to believe. And we can understand, we can sympathize with Abraham's uh, weak faith because Abraham was 100 years old and his wife was 90 years old. And now the Lord is repeating this promise. First, he says, he asks, where is Sarah? Where's your wife? Abraham replies that she's in the tent, probably following the custom of the day. She's staying in the tent while they're eating. So she's in the tent. Then the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Then the text tells us that Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. She might have been in the tent, but her ears were wide open, and she was listening. The walls of a tent aren't very soundproof, and so she could hear what was going on. And God intended for her to hear what he was saying. Then verse 11 explicitly states the impossibility of Sarah having a baby. Not only was she and Abraham old, It says very explicitly, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. There comes a point in a woman's life where she just physically cannot conceive and bear a child. And at the age of 90, Sarah had hit that stage of her life as a woman. And so she's looking at it as I think all of us would from a human perspective. And she laughs to herself. She doesn't laugh out loud. She laughs to herself saying, after I am worn out, And my Lord, talking about Abraham, is old, shall I have pleasure? That is, shall I engage in the act that leads to the conception of a child? Once again, we see weak faith on display. Once again, we see God's incredible patience on display. But we also get some evidence here that this is not just a mere man who is standing there. Remember, Sarah didn't LOL, right? It wasn't a laugh out loud. She laughed to herself. I don't know what the acronym is for that. I don't think we have one. Um... She laughed to herself, and yet, notice what happens. The Lord, who's standing there, who sees all, hears all, and knows all, he says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Can you imagine being Sarah right there? What? I was to myself. Nobody could hear that, except God can. He says, why does Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And then comes a rhetorical question which reveals a very important truth about God. God says, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's a question that didn't need answering because the answer is obvious. If God is creator, possessor of heaven and earth, then nothing is too hard for the Lord. The answer is nothing. So, Sarah, you're 90 years old. Your body has gone through the changes which make it impossible for you to bear a child. No problem. That's what God says. No problem. 
Not for the God who spoke creation into existence. God graciously reveals this truth about himself that Abraham and Sarah needed to know in order for their weak faith to be strengthened. Nothing is too hard for God. And perhaps today you need to hear and know and believe that truth as well. Friend, nothing is too hard for God. Now that doesn't mean that he will do whatever impossible thing you just want him to do. He only acts in accordance with his will. Just ask Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, Father, all things are possible for you, yet not what I will, but what you will. But that being said, the truth we see here in Genesis chapter 18 is that no matter how impossible the thing is that God says he will do, church, we can trust that God has the power to do it. The prophet Jeremiah reminded the nation of Israel of this truth when all hope seemed lost for them as a nation, as the nation of Babylon was coming in and carrying them into exile. And from a human perspective, it seemed like they were done as a people. But Jeremiah said this, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. He said that as a statement of faith in the Lord because the Lord had promised that he was going to bring the exiles back to that land. And then a few verses later in Jeremiah 32, we read this. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Now, God is speaking to Jeremiah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? And if you keep reading, it's really, it's really awesome. If you keep reading in Jeremiah, you realize that the context of God reminding his people of his ability to do whatever he wants there in Jeremiah is in the context of him making with them, and these words are there, if you'll remember from last week, an everlasting covenant. The same context in which Jeremiah speaks the truth that nothing is too hard for God is the same context in which God is speaking that truth to Abraham and Sarah in the context of teaching them what it's like to be in a covenant relationship with God. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Church, God will keep his covenant. God will keep his promises. Nothing that seems impossible will stand in his way. Not the weak faith of his people nor the barren womb of an old lady, nor the virgin womb of a young girl who, when visited by an angel and was told that she would bear a son whose name would be Jesus, questioned the angel, saying, How will this be, since I am a virgin? To which the angel replied, Nothing will be impossible with God. Friend, I'm so thankful that the mighty power of God can do the impossible, especially when I consider how dead in sin I used to be. When I consider that I was a, by nature a child of God's wrath and that there was nothing humanly possible that I could do to save myself, I am overjoyed that God can do the impossible. For the God who has the power to infuse life in the barren and old womb and life in the virgin womb is the same God who has the power to infuse life into hearts which are dead in sin. Jesus spoke. Jesus was honest. He he spoke of the great difficulty from a human standpoint of, and in that case, when Jesus was speaking, a man who was good in the eyes of the world, not an evil man in the eyes of the world, but a man who The world would have said, this is a good man. If anybody's going to heaven, if anybody's in the kingdom, this is the man. Jesus spoke of the great difficulty of that man ever entering the kingdom of God because Jesus knew his heart. And when the disciples heard Jesus say that, they they asked Jesus a question. Well, how then can anybody be saved? And you know what Jesus said? It's not surprising once we've read all that we've just read. 
He said to his disciples, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Church, our salvation is dependent upon God doing the impossible. That is supernaturally transforming our hearts of rebellion against him to hearts of faith in him. Supernaturally resurrecting our hearts that are dead in sin to hearts that are now alive in Christ. Praise God that nothing is too hard for him. God has the power to do what seems impossible. Third truth I want to share with you is this. God chooses us so that we will live for him. Remember, this is just chapter 18. If we're looking for a common theme here, it's God just pouring out revelation of himself to Abraham and Sarah. They are experiencing the blessing of living in covenant relationship with him. And one of the things God reveals to them is that God chooses us so that we will live for him. Verse 14 begins a new scene by directing our attention away from the home of Abraham to the home of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Remember, Lot had chosen to settle in the city of Sodom. And in chapter 13, verse 13, we learn that the men, quote, the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now Abraham is walking with his visitors to a place where they could look out towards the city of Sodom. The Lord speaks and he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. So we see God restating the promise he made to Abraham back in chapter 12 as he considers telling Abraham what he's going to do. Again, another blessing of living in covenant relationship with God. But before he tells Abraham what he's going to do, he seems to reflect, God seems to reflect for a moment on his covenant relationship with Abraham, which is the reason he's going to give Abraham the inside scoop, if you will, of what's fixing to happen in Sodom. In verse 19, God says, For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised. Why is Abraham in covenant relationship with God? Is it because Abraham has somehow earned it? No. I know this seems to be a recurring theme chapter to chapter, but friends, it's because it's important. God wouldn't put it in his word so many times if he didn't want us to hear it. So many times we must be reminded God enters into covenant relationship with us because of his grace. He chooses to. He doesn't look at us and say, well, I must do this because they are so good. He says, I want to do this and I'm going to do this because I love them despite their sin. What does verse 19 say? It says God chose Abraham. The actual Hebrew word there is the word to know. But it carries with it the meaning of to choose. The point here is that God is the reason Abraham is now existing in covenant relationship with him. Perhaps it's to keep Abraham humbled. Oh, wow, the Lord is appearing to me. God's revealing himself to me. I just got to feed the Lord, right? To keep him humble. Abraham, just remember, I chose you. God says, I have chosen Abraham. God called Abraham. God made promise to Abraham. And Abraham simply responded to God's choice of him with faith. And that's how anyone enters into covenant relationship with God. It's based on God's choice, which we've said over and over means it's rooted in the grace of God. It's not something we deserve. And we'll see this truth again. I, wanna, I wanted to hit on it here because we're going to see this truth again on display uh, with Abraham's grandsons several chapters down the road. We're going to see this truth on display very clearly with Abraham's grandsons. 
But I want you to notice here God's purpose in choosing Abraham. Notice the purpose. Verse 19 says that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Listen, God chose Abraham for the purpose of godliness. God chose Abraham so that Abraham would walk in obedience to him. God chose Abraham so that Abraham would be holy. And church, that's why God chooses anyone. That's why God chooses us. That's why God enters into covenant relationship with people. It is not to leave us the same, to leave us in our sin, but it is to make us holy. Listen to Paul's words to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. There's covenant relationship. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now notice the purpose. That we should be holy and blameless before him. Friends, God doesn't change. He chose people for the purpose of righteous living in Abraham's day. He chooses people for the righteous purpose of living. He did that in Paul's day and he does that in our day today. He enters into covenant relationship with us so that we would live righteously. So that we would put away sin and we would live in the holiness of the God who has entered into relationship with us by his grace. Do not be deceived. God never saves someone from sin without the purpose of turning that person from sin to a life of obedience. And God always accomplishes his purposes. If God has chosen us, if God has saved us, then our lives will look more and more like him when it comes to righteousness and justice and holiness. We will be putting off the old self and we will be putting on the new self, as Paul wrote to the Colossians, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. God chooses us, church, so that we will live for him, so that we'll look like to those around us that we belong to the God who is holy and righteous and just. God chooses us so that we will live for him. Fourth truth that God reveals to Abraham and to us in this passage is this. Church, God notices and responds to human sin. God notices and responds to human sin. Remember, the visitors and Abraham are looking towards Sodom, and God is going to let Abraham in on what is about to happen. Verse 20, then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So much that we could learn even just from that statement. But I simply want us to notice here that sin does not go unnoticed by God. Sodom and Gomorrah are full of sin. We're going to get an up-close and personal view of the sin of Sodom next week, Lord willing, in chapter 19. But for now, just realize that God is a God who notices sin. The outcry of the wickedness, the text says, has come to me, God says. It has come to me. But he doesn't just notice it. Notice it. He responds to it. God responds to it. He is going down to see it. And as we will see in chapter 19, he is going to respond appropriately so that he can punish those living in sin. Consider three quick applications of this truth for you and me and the rest of the world. First, if you are living in sin, don't think for a second that God doesn't notice it. If you are living in sin, don't think for a second 
that God is somehow not seeing that sin. That somehow God is unaware. Listen, the God who is all-powerful is also the God who is all-knowing. Nothing is too hard for him, and nothing escapes his notice. He notices your sin, and he will punish your sin. So, here's the good news. You need to, you must, you can repent and believe in Jesus. Repent of your sin and believe in Jesus to save you from your sin that God does notice. Second application is that there will be an answer to wickedness when the time comes for the wicked to answer to God. There will be an answer to the wickedness when the time comes for the wicked to answer to God. As believers, and we see this firsthand even today, even what's going on in our world right now, it is hard to watch the sin and corruption and wickedness and of evil in our world. It's difficult to see that, to watch that, to see it unfold, even with modern technology before our eyes. It's difficult, it's hard to watch people suffer because of the grave sin of people who are in rebellion against their Creator. But brothers and sisters, don't think for a second that somehow God is letting sin go unpunished. Wicked people may or may not be brought to justice this side of eternity, but God is watching and His wrath is building. It is being stored up until the appropriate time. And then a third application from this truth that God sees and responds, notices and responds to sin is this. Church, there is an urgent need for the wicked from every nation to hear and believe the good news of Jesus Christ. If God does notice sin, if it doesn't escape his notice, and if his wrath is building toward those who die in their sin, then there is an urgent need that we would go to the people who are living in their sin and warn them that wrath is coming so that they can know the good news that Jesus has come to rescue them from their sin so that they can repent of their sin and believe in Christ for salvation. Urgent. Church, God notices and responds to human sin. And I want us to look at one final truth. What an incredible truth this is. I hope our minds are being just overwhelmed in a sense with the awesomeness and goodness and power and majesty of God. We've got to add one more. God adds one more in, in the mix here. And that's this, church. God always does what is right. God always does what is right. Now that Abraham realizes that Sodom is about to have the wrath of God poured out on it, he moves from gracious host to bold intercessor. Because remember, Abraham's nephew lives in Sodom. Lot lives in Sodom. And we already know that Abraham cares for Lot because back in chapter 14, we saw Abraham risk his life to rescue Lot from some foreign invaders. So in verses 22 through 33, we see Abraham intercede before the Lord on Lot's behalf. And his plea is very simple. If you are just God, if you are just, if you are righteous, then you will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. That's his plea. That's the truth that we see here. Verse 23, Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing. To put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous spares the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? We pause for just a moment and say that Abraham never once questions God pouring wrath out on the wicked. He never never accuses God of being unjust for pouring his wrath out on the wicked. What he does say is, God, if you are just, then will you not rescue the righteous? Will you not spare them from your wrath? 
And here we have another rhetorical question that doesn't need answering because we know the answer. The answer is obviously, of course, the judge of all the earth will do what is just because he is perfectly righteous. But God graciously provides Abraham with an answer. The Lord says, if I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham gets to thinking, well, what if there's not 50? What about 45? What about 40? What about 30? What about 20? What about 10? Almost sounds like an auction, right? And God forbears with him through that whole process. And God says, even for the sake of 10, I will not destroy the city. Now, unfortunately for Sodom, there weren't even 10 righteous people in the city. But God had a plan of rescue for Lot, as we will see in chapter 19. What our attention should be drawn to here in this passage is Abraham's question. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Do what is right? And the comforting answer both here and throughout Scripture is yes. God always does what is right. Church, we may not always understand what God is doing, but we can trust that God always does what is right. And this means at least two things for us. First, that God's wrath towards sinners is always justified. Every time we see God punish someone for sin, we can trust it is the right thing for him to do. When God destroys Sodom, it will be the right thing for him to do. I'm speaking in present tense because we haven't got there in chapter 19. Excuse me, future, future tense. When God tells Israel to destroy the people in the land of Canaan, it's the right thing for God to do. They're hard chapters to read in God's word, but that was the right thing for him to do. When God casts unrepentant sinners into the lake of fire forever, It will be the right thing for him to do. God's wrath towards sinners is always justified. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Yes, he will. But secondly, it means that God's rescue of sinners is always justified. It is always right. When God rescues sinners, it is the right thing for him to do. But that raises a question that I want us to close with. If sinners deserve God's wrath, how in the world can God be justified in rescuing sinners from his wrath? That almost sounds like God is contradicting himself. If it is right for God to punish the wicked, then how in the world can God rightly rescue the wicked from the wrath that they deserve? And friends, the beautiful and simple and profound answer to that question is Jesus. Jesus is how God, the judge of all the earth, can rightly rescue sinners from from their sin, not giving them the punishment that they deserve, while at the same time God remains the just judge of all the earth. Paul wrote to the Romans that sinners are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation uh, to be, uh, by His blood to be received by faith. That means Jesus was a sacrifice, and we got to receive him by faith. And this was to show, note this, God's righteousness, Paul writes. Because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he, he's talking about God, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's how the judge of all the earth can justly rescue sinners. He punished 
his son in their place. Listen, God is not ignoring our sin, and that's how we can have a relationship with him. God sees our sin, and he loves us so much that he sends his son to die in our place. All sin is punished. But for those who have faith in Christ Jesus, our sins have been placed upon Jesus Christ the righteous one who became sin for us so that we who are sinners could become the righteousness of God. And therefore, God can justly rescue us from his wrath because the son paid the price for our sin. So I wonder if you placed your faith in Jesus. Friend, it's the only way for the judge of all the earth to remain right and rescue you from your sin. And God is willing to do that. Would you place your faith in Jesus today? And church, for those of us who have trusted Christ as our Lord and Savior, are we thankful that God has condescended to us through the Lord Jesus Christ to help us know Him in a saving relationship? Are we seeking to know Him more and more? Are we believing that He always does what is right. No matter what's going on in your life right now, God is doing what is right. Do we believe that He can do what seems impossible from our standpoint? Do we know and believe that God notices sin and so we need to live holy lives before Him in response to His grace and we need to go to a world and tell them that God notices their sin but He has provided a way of rescue. Friends, knowledge of God is important. But it's not just so that we can fill our minds with facts about God. But when we know God in a covenant-saving relationship and we keep growing in that knowledge, it leads us to live lives of holiness before the Lord. I pray that we would be a people who know God well and continue to grow in that knowledge so that we can grow to trust Him more and more. Would you pray with me? Father, Thank you so much for your word, which teaches us about you. God, if we want to know who you are and, and, and how you do things and, 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 and what's behind the decisions you make and what you're doing right now in our lives and in this world and what you're going to do one day, God, you have revealed that to us in your word and we just need to go and open it up and be students of your word and grow in our knowledge of you, not just so that we can have our minds filled with facts about you, but God, so that we can love you more. God, I can only imagine that Abraham and Sarah's faith after this encounter with you, their faith grew. And then they loved you more. They were more grateful for you, that you were their God, and that you had entered into covenant with them. And God, I pray that you would do that in our hearts today. God, as we respond to your word by singing songs of praise to you, may we sing with thankfulness that you have loved us enough to send Jesus to this earth so that we could know you forever. And God, may our worship in here spill over into worship out there where we live lives of righteousness before you, sharing this good news with those who need to hear it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.